Thank you all very much for coming. Um, I'm Nick Stern, and I'm a professor here at the LSE. I'm, I'm going to be chairing the event this evening. Now, the first thing to do is to make sure that those in the back row can hear. Can you? Yeah. Very good, and uh, you're capable of movement. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's uh, a very special pleasure uh, for me to introduce the two people on the platform uh, tonight, uh, great friends, personally great friends of the LSE. Um, let me start by introducing Amartya Sen. Uh, it's the Amartya Sen lecture, and I thought I should start by introducing Amartya Sen, just to make it very clear it's not the Amartya Sen memorial lecture. <laughs> so... Um, could you move a part of your anatomy? Uh, yes. Uh, um, Amartya has been a friend of um, about 45 years. Our first Christmas in India, 1974, we spent with him in a Chinese restaurant in, uh, in Calcutta. Um, but of even greater distinction, he won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1998. Um, uh, the Bharat Ratna Jewel of India in 1999, and last year he was the first non-US recipient of the National Humanities Medal. Um, those are the awards and distinctions, but of course the great distinction is, uh, is in his work, and which I'm sure many of you here, I won't uh, try to summarise it all. Many countries own Namacha, or claim that they own Namacha. Uh, India, where he was born and whose passport he carries, uh, Bangladesh, where he, uh, he in many, grew up in many ways, went to school, the UK, of course, um, United States, where he now, work, now works. We all claim him. Uh, many universities claim Amartya, Presidency College in Calcutta, Oxford, where he was a professor, Cambridge, where he was Master of Trinity, Harvard, where he's now a professor. Very special years, though, at the schools of economics uh, for 10 years in the 60s to the early 70s uh, at the Delhi School of Economics, and most importantly, 1972 to 1977, when he was a professor of economics at the London School of Economics. The, uh, and indeed, over the last two decades, he's been collaborating very fruitfully with a former researcher here, um, uh, Jean, Jean Dres, and uh, a number of books, and one which is about to appear. Now, the lectures are in uh, Amartya's name, and uh, he is uh, a very special significance in our subject, very special significance in economics, um, and it is one of those uh, contributions that it's so difficult to do justice to, because if you picked one bit, you might be irritating Amartya because you hadn't picked the other bit, and so I'm not going to pick any bit. Uh, Amartya and uh, it's a tremendous range from the technical to the very human indeed um, the political and so on and it's wonderful for us to have the second Amartya Sen lecture at the LSE here there have been uh, three uh, Amartya Sen lectures in Brussels before this one but the, this is the second one at the London School of Economics the first one was a great friend of the three of us uh, Joe Stiglitz last year 
We're very grateful to the support of Stickert and the Department of International Development here at the LSE and to our friends at uh, Trinity College uh, Cambridge who have played a role in getting all these um, uh, lectures, lectures going. And to uh, Amy Marsden and the back for doing so much of the work to, to make this happen. Now, Jim, um, you, um, you hired me in 2000 to be the chief economist of the World Bank and, and immediately got into a great deal of trouble. And I, I won't go through the causes of the trouble, but it was associated with hiring me. And, um, and the problem was that my brother was already working there and there was a strict rule about not hiring brothers, um, which Jim told the board of the World Bank all about, but that's another story. The, uh, but working with you, Jim, was one of the outstanding um, and rewarding experiences of my life. And uh, Jim is going to tell us uh, about his ten. I was there for only three years. Jim is going to tell us about his ten years at the World Bank, but much more than that. He's going to tell us about his reflections on a changing world, um, 1950 to 2050. Uh, Sir James, because he was knighted in 1990. Five um, KBE, but wasn't able to call himself Sir because we have very strict rules in this country that unless you're a citizen of the Commonwealth, you can't call yourself Sir. But he regained his um, Australian citizenship to reprise one of his many great achievements, which was 1956. He fenced for Australia in the Olympics at Melbourne, and they had a rerun, so he decided he wasn't going to wear his Australian outfit until he'd acquired his Australian citizenship. But at that point, we had to start calling him um, Sir James. Uh, enormously successful banker in London and New York, amateur cellist, chair of Carnegie Hall and the Kennedy Centre. Indeed, he was uh, knighted for his services to the arts. So he was an outstanding leader in his, in his profession, in his sport, and in culture, and all that before he went to the World Bank in 1995. In my view, and this is my view, um, there have been just two great presidents of the World Bank in its 70-year history, uh, Robert McNamara and Jim Wolfenson. Robert McNamara found his commitment to fighting poverty, which was indeed deep and sincere, after his involvement in the extraordinarily destructive Vietnam War. Jim's commitment was always there, and uh, you made it absolutely central to the work of the bank. You deepened the understanding of what poverty meant. Again, an area of a march is uh, to understand what it meant. But you took the understanding of the World Bank to a much deeper level. And above all, you showed how to deliver. Looking back, I think we'll see 1995 to 2005 as, very, as a very important period in fighting world poverty. And actually a period of some success. Success is never total in these areas, but a, a period of some success. So, Sir James, Jim, citizen of the world, friend, you're enormously welcome here at the LSE. Thank you so much, Nick, and uh, let me say how proud I am to be at the table uh, with you, Lord Stern, and with you, Nobel Prize winner, uh, Amartya Sen. I feel outgunned, and I noticed that you did not 
talk about my academic achievements in the same way that you did about um, those of my friend Amartya. I find that a bit depressing, actually, because uh, my record uh, is equally lustrous, uh, but a little, little unknown. I know I once tried to get to London School of Economics, but was advised that I probably shouldn't come here uh, after my record, and so I had to go and study in the United States instead. And um, I'm sorry about that now, as I look around and see so many wonderful young people in the audience and very distinguished-looking professors who are looking at me with great concern about what I might do, given my lack of, <laughs> lack of uh, academic background. I am thrilled to be here with the marchers. I think you know, Ravindra Tagore uh, gave him his name. Uh, he knew already then that he was immortal, because that is the meaning of a marcher. And Emma uh, is also has another uh, name, which means that she is beautiful, intelligent, and caring, uh, which is uh, an Australian uh, derivation of the name Emma. Uh, as to Nick, I don't know what you are, Nick. <laughs> but I have to say, you're a great friend, and I appreciate being here. I've had the great privilege when I was at the World Bank of having um, <coughs> some people to help me. One was Larry Summers, who went on to become... Uh, Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Joe Stiglitz, who was last here lecturing you, was Chief Economist from 1997 to 2000. And then, of course, Nick from 2000 to 2003. The only difference is that tonight I can't read their speech. And so I had to stay up rather late last night uh, looking to see what I would say to this audience who already knows more about economics than I shall ever know. But I did take the opportunity to read again Development as Freedom, uh, which is uh, one of the March's many books. And uh, I read through the introduction, uh, in which I was hoping to find a nice reference to me. Uh, uh, and he did describe something about my background. Uh, he was particularly anxious to point out that I was, for 23 years, head of the Institute of Advanced Study at Princeton, uh, that was a great job for me because I never understood anything that they said. But I would chair the dinners and look intelligent. Uh, and uh, it was a wonderful task. But then I went on, since Amartya had done six lectures for us at the bank, I then found out something else that he said. He said, the World Bank has not invariably been my favorite organization. <laughs> and the power to do good goes almost always with the possibility to do the opposite. As a professional economist, I had occasion in the past to wonder whether the bank could not have done very much better. I didn't know you thought that about us, Amartya, but um, anyway, you were very welcome at the time. And, 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 and I also was happy that uh, when you put out uh, your book, Development as Freedom, that you picked up a number of my ideas uh, <laughs> to talk about the five freedoms. Uh, which, uh, interestingly, were exactly what acknowledge. I... Acknowledge. What's that? You, acknowledge. I don't think you acknowledge it. <laughs> the only reference was to how much he... how little he thought of what I was intellectually. <laughs> but he did talk about political freedoms and economic facilities and uh, freedom of economic security, social opportunities. I think you know all this. 
uh, and he did mention corruption and protective security. And I have to tell you that I stayed up till 4 o'clock this morning wishing that I had read this book uh, before I had taken the task of running the bank. And I, I suggest to you that if you're going to get into public service, you must read that book, but not at 4 a.m. Uh, and it was, it was and is a remarkable uh, uh, book. And I have had the chance, I'm happy to say, to read it before. But uh, the thing that it did is it is such a human approach uh, to development. Uh, we get used to uh, thinking about how many people have just dropped off uh, the list of extreme poverty, how many people live under $2.50 and how many live under a dollar and a quarter a day. And it's as though for many people that is the yardstick of how successful you are in development. And of course, if you're in the business, you recognize that and that doesn't mean a hell of a lot. And I'm very happy to say that the gentleman on both sides of me tonight, as well as Joe Stiglitz, who was here uh, at your last meeting, uh, were very, very clear on what I learned about the business, which is that poverty is a multifaceted activity. And indeed, uh, to look at it, you need to look well beyond just the issue of how much you earn. Uh, and you need, when you're president of the World Bank, also to create an environment in which your objective is not just to meet the numerical target, but indeed to create the opportunity for people who live in poverty to have an opportunity to broaden their, line, more broaden their lives and to do the sort of things which Amarcha talks about so clearly in his book. And we saw during my period at the bank quite a lot happening in the period between 1950 and 2000. Uh, you probably know that the G7 uh, plus Canada came together in 1975 uh, that in 1997, Russia was added, so that it became the G8. Uh, in 2003, uh, uh, there was a very interesting meeting held uh, by Jacques Chirac chairing it in, in, um, in Canada. And uh, no, it wasn't. It was in, in France. It was just across the Lake Le Mans. And I remember we went over there, and for the first time, for the first time, uh, the G8 invited some of the unwashed uh, people whom we were trying to help, and they were each given 12 minutes to speak. There were 10 presidents of developing countries. And in order, they spoke, uh, as I recall, uh, the first one was um, uh, President Hu of China, who spoke uh, movingly about what had happened in China. And then President Bajpai from India, I know he spoke for 12 minutes, but I regret to say I didn't understand a word, uh, uh, Marcia. Uh, uh, but I know it was impressive. Uh, and, and then President Lula, uh, who was the newly uh, installed president of Brazil, and he said uh, what I feel tonight, that my parents would be very proud if they thought I was making a speech in this, uh, in this context. He said how proud he was to be there in the presence of all these great leaders. And then he suggested, uh, why don't you next year come and have your meeting in Brazil? Because uh, that'll get you used to having meetings in Brazil. Because in a decade's time, uh, three or four of you will not be here. You will be replaced by Brazil, 
Russia, India, China, and you might as well get used to coming and meeting in a developing country. It was said as a joke. Uh, the people uh, from the more developed world didn't laugh very much, but they, <laughs> they did note that he had made that intervention. And, of course, it is correct that what has happened since then is that we have a much broader sharing of global leadership. Indeed, that mutated into a G20, which has now replaced the G8 in terms of a representative body where uh, the issues of the 80% in terms of income of the world are discussed. And uh, then there is another group, as you know, the G77, which are the less fortunate countries, which I might add uh, now has become the G131, uh, that uh, with 131 members uh, being there to discuss uh, the role of uh, the other 20% of the world's income. And this is the way the current breakdown is of the, at least the official institution the, uh, that is representing the countries of the world. But what is happening is, is really much deeper than that. Um, and let me just comment on some of the things that I saw during my period at the bank, because they may interest you, because they affected me very much. Um, in particular, the first thing that you became a question, especially if you're at the World Bank, was the issue of what was happening in Africa. When I took the job at the bank, uh, there were four countries that uh, had uh, initially been given their freedom or taken their freedom, uh, and that was Liberia, South Africa, Egypt, and Ethiopia. Uh, just before I came, I should say that after that in the 50s, Libya and Sudan and Morocco came in. And uh, by the time I was uh, uh, starting... Uh, there was some move to have freedom and, uh, and uh, recognition of the rights to govern yourself to the other countries. And within pretty short order, uh, we had uh, 53 countries that were independent in the continent of Africa. Uh, it was quite uh, interesting to me because uh, one of the countries was Nigeria, uh, which um, uh, was given freedom in 1960 given its right to independence. And I remember I was so moved by it in my first job for an American company, I convinced my boss that I should go down to Nigeria and uh, because this was a, a great and important country in Africa and that it was about time that American companies recognized uh, what was happening and that I would go down there and I would establish uh, a foothold for my uh, company that I was then working for. Well, I went there and uh, there were still the flags up for independence and uh, I remember going into the Parliament House and I was so impressed by Africans wearing full-bottomed wigs and, and everything that you have in Westminster uh, that I decided to take some pictures with a little minox that my wife had given me until about 15 minutes later a policeman came up and uh, tapped me on the shoulder to leave and I was quite sure that that was then... Uh, to go to the meeting with a minister that I had until I found his arm holding my arm rather firmly as we walked outside. And then there were people outside the Parliament House calling out, spy, spy, spy. And um, 
I said, is there a spy there? He said, yes, you, sir. <laughs> and he took me along to the office of the leader of opposition, uh, where the door clicked shut, and the policeman was outside. And I thought, you know, for my first trip for my American company, it would be wonderful to go back in chains or to have the, uh, have the uh, New York Times say that a representative of the country was arrested today in Nigeria. And so I decided that the only thing to do, since it was a terrible mistake, was to open the door and run by and see if I could find someone in authority. Well, I did that, now pursued by my policeman and the person had gone, and I saw a room marked prayer room. Uh, so I rushed into the prayer room, and there was a Muslim member of the Nigerian parliament washing his feet, getting ready to pray. And he said, what on earth are you doing here? In a perfect Oxford accent. I said, I'm looking for asylum. Uh, and... and, and uh, so he said to me, uh, he's, calm down, young man, calm down. So I told him the story, and uh, he took me then to the office of the leader of the opposition. I was still pretty shaken, um, at which time an Irish head of security came along, picked me up, and took me down to the police station. And he told me I had one call to make. And uh, this reminded me of a very bad movie, but anyway, I, I called the person that I was going to see that night, who was the chief justice of the Western region, so I got him on the phone, and he said, oh, yes, I'm very anxious to see you tonight. I said, well, sir, I'm very anxious to see you too, but I have a problem. And he said, what's that? I said, I'm arrested. <laughs> and anyway, to cut a long story short, he got me out. But the next day, there were headlines about this white spy, aged 50, uh, who, who was there. And that was my first experience of Africa. And... Uh, <laughs> It didn't stop me going back to Africa, but it nearly stopped me going back. And every time after that, when I went down there, I would get from Obasanjo a letter saying that I was his friend and that I was not a spy. <laughs> and I say that only to tell you that Africa's come a long way since then. But in those days, it was hugely sensitive uh, about everything. In, and although there are 170 million people there, which is not a trivial country, uh, it was one that was seriously growing up and there was a certain inbuilt uncertainty about Europeans, uh, particularly. Uh, and so I, I, I almost gave up my interest in Africa, but not, not so much that it didn't allow me, uh, when I was at the World Bank, to recognize that Africa was for us to be the central challenge, really, of what we were doing. And Nick knows it well or better than I did. And I had the opportunity thereafter of going frequently to Africa and see the enormous uh, developments that have taken place in that continent. But they're developments that I think uh, we can't yet claim victory uh, in, uh, in, in what has happened in the continent, and I'll get back to that in just a minute. Uh, I recollected on my first trip to Africa, which I took to be the major challenge I had, I went to uh, Malawi and I went to Mali, I went to South Africa, happily on the day of the Springbok game against South Africa for the World Cup, which was a, an amazing experience, to the Cote d'Ivoire, to Uganda. And um, again, I was influenced particularly by the great split that there was between the very poor and the very rich. Unfortunately, when I went to Malawi and uh, stayed at the presidential palace, I became 
very clear on what you could do if you were very rich. And indeed, it was um, set up with the sort of opulence that you could only dream of if you wanted to be that opulent. But it was uh, it presented a challenge to me uh, that when I got to the World Bank, I recognised was to be central uh, to the work that we were doing. In that period before uh, the year 2000, and indeed in the period afterwards, and I have to say that as I look back on the period before the year 2000, uh, there were a number of things that I thought were critical. The first thing was uh, that when I got to the bank in 1995, I immediately took a look at Africa and indeed went to Africa five days after my appointment was confirmed and I'd entered the bank. I should tell you in those days that the bank was pretty resistant to amateurs like me and that they'd had a series of presidents who, since Bob McNamara, had been more token leaders than I think I can say than active in their activities, all very good people but not, not terribly much getting their hands dirty. And the bank was totally uh, controlled uh, by, if I may say so, by a group of some Americans, but mainly Pakistanis and Indians, who were the heads of the regions. There were no uh, meetings of the bank itself. On Friday, these, these uh, people would get together and would have a discussion over lunch about what was happening. But each one had his own bank, and that was not, I think... Uh, ideal, uh, but it made me a bit of a problem when I came to the bank because they were quite used to having a chairman who was not going to get engaged in the reconstruction and the reorganization of the institution. And so my first challenge at the bank was to try and see if one could make it into an institution that had a leader, however good or bad he was, and some organization to bring it together institutionally. And that was the challenge that I had to face in uh, 1995. And it was pretty tough because I would come back and I would try to make jokes as I've tried here and there wouldn't be a single laugh. And um, I would find out from my friends in the press that this week there were only a dozen letters complaining about me. There were only six letters complaining about me. But there was a strong institutional reaction Uh, to any degree of change. And then what I discovered was that the best place to go were the people under 25. It was a group that had never been spoken to, and then when I expanded it to the group under 35, I found that they'd never been spoken to either. (coughs) So I was able, as I look around this room, to appeal to a much younger audience and say, if you want to change this place, stick with me. And so we did change the institution, and we made it an institution which was then one of sharing responsibility, of of bringing it to a very different level, because in the days when I got there, the leaders of each region of the world would visit the regions, but they would never think of living there. And the decision makers were all in New York, in in Washington. And the meetings uh, each year to decide on what happened in these countries where we were lending money or doing projects, were all held either in Washington or in Paris. And uh, I then thought that if it is 
the World Bank, why don't we move people to the field? And why don't we have the meetings in the field so that you could have not just the chosen representatives, but that you could actually get a feel of the country. You could meet with civil society, you could meet with government, you could expose yourself to criticisms, you could engage the society. And so we started doing that, and that, I might add, was something that so many of the other investment banks then started doing. Because development is not something that can be imposed from the outside. If that's what happens in development, it's not going to work. What you must do is to reflect the best thinking inside the society. Of course, adding whatever commentary you have on your own experience. But that to develop a real action in terms of development in the developing world, you must engage the people in those countries. And you can't look at them as some pawn on a chessboard that you're playing with. You must engage the society. And so we started doing that, and the other investment banks, I might add, the regional banks, all started to do the same. And so instead of the central bank, instead of the regional banks and the bank ourselves, and the same was true of the International Monetary Fund, instead of us sitting in Washington or sitting in Paris or sitting in the capitals, we went out. And the first lesson that I realized was that if you're going to be in development at all, and you're going to bring about change, you must do it inside the society that you're dealing with. You cannot, as a colonial master, come in from the outside and try and bring about change. And so this is something that we then sought to do as a first major move in terms of the bank itself. The second thing that we sought to do, which was, I think, of great importance, and which was obviously at the core of Amartya's own writing, was to recognize that if you're going to try and bring about change in a society, first of all, it's not done by a stroke of the pen. It's no simple thing. That it is a complex activity. That you must engage yourself in a whole host of activities that you can't deal with overnight, but where you need to try and get the people focused on change which comes over a period of years. And what you don't want to do is to have it constantly changed by a changing government. You need to establish something which can be a plan for that country and which has the possibility of enduring. And while I didn't copy what I was doing from Amartya or anybody else, what I did try and do was to set up two things first. The first was to try and deal with the issue of the outstanding debt. One of the things I came to realize after a couple of years is that we would make loans of 15 billion or 16 billion or 14 billion. And I would look at the end of the year when they gave me the annual report to see my 16 billion adding to the balance sheet. And every year the balance sheet was a billion or so up or down the 16 billion was never there. And I wondered how you could be adding 16 billion in terms of your assets and the balance sheet would change a billion either way. Of course, the answer was that you were getting repaid 15 billion or sometimes you get repaid 17 billion. And so the balance sheet never really changed very much. I took out, but don't have the time to give it to you today, but I took out the last sort of 20 years of the balance sheets of the bank group and if you just take my word for it, it, it really 
barely changed each year. We started, when I started with sort of 184 billion, 206, then by the time I got there, 207, 217, 221, 224, 217, 218. It was all around the same level. And I got, I then went to the uh, shareholders and said, you know, this is being caused by the enormous debt that there is. What is changing uh, these figures is that uh, we are claiming back debts all the time. And the money that we're giving them can only be used essentially to repay us. Uh, and if you really want something to be done, we have to get rid of this debt load. And that, that took a little convincing. But in fact, in the end, uh, we uh, retired $76 billion worth of debt. And then shortly after that, there was another program. And in total, $113 billion worth of debt was written off in Africa. $113 billion. That is a very substantial amount. And then that allowed the money that we would give to be used for something constructive. And we made sure that it was then put into the sort of programs of health and education and development of the people that could then be used. And so we would have 2 3% every year of the GDP going into constructive purposes instead of being round trip to us. And that has brought about a significant change, except that, uh, very sadly, we're now seeing, again, a misuse of some of these funds. And that brought us to the other issue, which you then quickly become aware of, which is the issue of corruption. I'm not directing the corruption issue solely in Africa. The corruption issue is a global issue. And so on my second speech, I decided to make a speech in the annual meeting about the cancer of corruption, what this was doing to the development business. And I gave a draft of my speech, as I had to, to the general counsel. And instead of him coming into my office and saying, Jim, I want to make some comments, he came into my office and said, Mr. President, which he never called me, I'd like to see you outside my office. And I said, well, this is perfectly comfortable here, Abraham. Why, why don't we just have it here? He said, no, I've got to see you outside. So he walks out outside of my office into a sort of, not an auditorium, but an amphitheater sort of thing. And he took me behind a pillar and he said to me, Mr. President, I've read your speech. You cannot use the C word. And I said, Abraham, what the hell is the C word? <laughs> and he then quietly whispered to me, corruption. And I said, Ibrahim, why can't I talk about corruption? He said, well, I don't know whether you know this, but on your board, at least half the shareholders represent corrupt governments. <laughs> and you cannot embarrass them. And I said, well, I don't want to embarrass them, Ibrahim, but how can we run an institution if we know that the money's going to be stolen? And he said, well, it always has been that way, since Bob McMurray. And Bob never made a speech about the C word. So, of course, I went and made a speech about the C word and talked about it. Six months later, every director of the bank talked about corruption and how it didn't apply to them, which was a good start. But I'm, I regret to say that it's only a start because the level of corruption today is a very heavy burden. And on just about every project that I looked at in my 10 years in office, I would make an assumption that there was a discount of 15 or 20 percent on whatever money we put in, because it would be taken. I took a further discount in terms of 
an ineffective use of that money with a lot of overheads and a lot of people working on it. And so for every dollar that you put in, you started with the assumption, or I did, at best you would get 60% of the money that you were putting out going into the project itself. Now, those numbers may have changed today, but I can tell you in those days, working on the ground, it was a pretty decent, um, it was a pretty decent assumption to make. And so the issue of development and the issue of trying to help countries is very seriously involved in the issue of legality, corruption, and what is the take that people are getting locally. It's not a very happy subject to talk about, but it is a very real subject. And so what we did further was to not only try and take account of the corruption issue, but also try and take account of trying to set out... <clears throat> what your program was going to be, and not just instant results, but over a period of time. And we introduced a thing called the Comprehensive Development Framework, which, looking at the time, I don't have time to get into, but very simply, <clears throat> what it was, it wasn't being copied from Amartya, but it's very similar from what Amartya was talking about, in that development is not just something simple, it is complex. And so we started by saying... There is a great importance in governance. There's a great importance in setting up a, a representative body. There's a great importance in having integrity with the government. It then went on to talk about education and health. It went, went on to talk about infrastructure and then to a number of other things. There were 14 headings that we looked at. And to my surprise, some 13 countries in the days that I was there were taking this idea of trying to come up not just with a gift to the country but coming up with a program that would be done over time and which would be done by discussions inside the country. And it led to what I think was particularly in the case of some Latin American countries that were very, very anxious to try and see this done in Latin America, try and see if you could come up with programs that were not annually approved in terms of just one year, but were annually approved in terms of a decadal view of where the country was going. I might add that that is the sort of thing that is being done in China with the five-year reviews that are being done there and where at least in terms of five-year terms they're trying to look out in terms of trying to establish a longer-term program broken down into these five-year uh, modules. And so it was that we changed not inconsiderably the way in which... Um, uh, this was being looked at until we came to the year 2000. <clears throat> I might tell you that until the year 2000, 80% uh, of the global GDP, 80%, was with the OECD countries. And that was at the year 2000, the billion people that lived in the so-called rich countries, the other 5 billion people which lived in the developing countries, and which included China and India, uh, were getting 20%. So the, uh, the breakdown was very uneven, and it had been like that for 30 years, a sort of 80-20 split uh, with the OECD countries having 80% of the global income and the other uh, 100 and whatever it was countries having 20%. But that was stability in the year 2000. And in terms of the control of the institutions themselves, that's the way the leadership was spread. You had an American at the World Bank, 
We had a European at the International Monetary Fund. And if you looked at the key positions that were being held in the international institutions, that is where the power was distributed. Although in some of the regional banks, uh, certainly the Asian bank was headed by Japanese, but the Japanese were a big contributor. But it was no doubt in the way in which the institutional framework was created that everybody was conscious of this 80-20 situation. That started to change in the year 2000. And it first started to change with, instead of 80-20, it was 75-25, and gradually going down. And what now we are anticipating by 2050 is that the 80-20 that we had will be 35-65. The 80%, namely the OECD countries, will have uh, 35% of global income, and the other 65% will be non-OECD countries that will have the 65% of global income. That is a huge change. It will bring also big changes in the way in which the international institution works. And if you read yesterday's newspaper and you saw the agenda for the forthcoming meeting between the President of the United States and the President of China, where they're going away for two days together. One of the items on the agenda is going to be the leadership of international institutions, not surprisingly. And I see it myself in the quality of people and the way uh, things are changing in the international institutions, not just the World Bank, but certainly with the IMF. And with Christine Lagarde, uh, who is doing a remarkable job. Now, for three years, she has been trying to change the percentage ownership of the IFC to make China number three and to put three of the developing countries in the top ten voting shareholders. The change is coming, but it is very much still resisted uh, by the big Western countries. But this change is hugely important in terms of the way in which uh, our global institutional framework is running. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I'm happy to just comment on, although it seems irrelevant here in the presence of Nick, is that the climate is changing. And the intrusion of Nick Stern into the international uh, arena of subjects has become quite an issue. The Stern Report, of course, warned us uh, that our environment was changing and that this was something that was not national, this was international. And he talked, as you know, what was then pretty modest changes, 3 4% in terms of global uh, temperature. Most recently, and I've got a quote from him somewhere here, most recently, as we have seen uh, the results of current uh, reviews, uh, we reached a point where we had 400 parts per mil of CO2 uh, recently announced. And it has caused Lord, caused Lord Stern, I think, to reassess the likely risks, even though, as I've discovered in my recent research, there are many, many experts who think that he doesn't have it right. But I'm quite convinced that A, he has it right, but B, if it's marginal, we can't take a risk on it in any of it. And we must get to dealing with this question, and I'm 
I'm just proud to have him as a friend and thrilled that he is uh, advocating something which for me seems very obvious, which is that this issue is a global issue, which requires the sort of attention that he's calling for, and that we'd better get on with it and try and deal with it. And I'm just hopeful that even though he will have new uh, responsibilities in his country as, uh, what is it, Nick? As president of the British Academy. President of the British Academy. I was calling him the Royal Society, and I'm sure that's not right. But, but he, I know he has a great office, which I hope to visit him in, uh, not too far from here. And um, that at least for four years I can be assured of a good lunch uh, when I come to London. And, and, and having Nick there is truly a wonderful thing for this country. I just hope that he continues on his international activities in terms of the, of the temperature and the global issues that are so important and for which he's such a remarkable spokesman. And so the temperature issue, the global issues, who are now intruding themselves in a way that national issues, of course, individually do not. But it is the first of those issues and the impact of climate change, as I think you all know, is very considerable. I was going to talk about the change in, in uh, income uh, levels, uh, but I've touched on it already. And I, What time am I supposed to finish? Now, is it? Well, can you give it another five minutes, Jim? Five minutes? Yeah. I will stop. I have another half hour's work here, but I will. The rest of it actually shows how clever I am. Um, uh, so you're just going to have to go away not knowing. But <clears throat> what, what does come out in the other materials is that the weight of economic leadership is shifting, has shifted, or continue to shift, uh, to the developing countries. And as I look at the 2050 statistics, I find that in terms of the non-adjusted uh, GDPs, it starts with China, United States may be number two, and then India, Japan, Germany, UK, but then in the top 20, Brazil, Mexico, France gets in, Italy, Turkey, South Korea, Spain, Russia, the Philippines, Indonesia, Australia sneaks in, Argentina, Egypt, and then as you go on, Malaysia, Thailand, Poland, Peru, Iran, Colombia, Switzerland, Pakistan, those were not the listings that I would have had when I was at university, nor would uh, my parents have thought that I should go study in a developing country. I was trying to get to the developing country of Japan, which wasn't such a developing country when I was leaving Australia, uh, but there was no scholarship available, so I had to go to Harvard instead. Uh, and, 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 but Harvard doesn't know that I... It was number two choice. Uh, but if you look now at the way in which the world is preparing for this, the fascinating thing is that the West is not preparing for it. If you look at China, for example, this year, they'll have 200,000 students coming to study in the United States. 200,000, the largest ever. Total of 350,000 in all going abroad. We will have 11,000 students from America going to China. The Indians will have 100,000 students coming to study in the United States. 
we will have 4,100 to study in India. The truth is that people 40, 50, 60 just don't recognize this change. So when their kids come to them and say, Dad, I'd really like some help to go study in Italy or France or occasionally Brazil or wherever it is, or England or one of those countries, that they understand. But if you talk about going to India or to China or to an Asian country or even a relatively poor country in Africa, you don't have a chance of getting support. These are the issues which I hope all of you recognize. Because for you, the future, the future is in the developing world. And you have to understand it. And I don't know what they teach at LSE. I'm sure they're well ahead of this issue. Uh, and that this is common knowledge. And I'm sure the agenda and the, uh, the uh, teaching has changed to direct you to this changing global pattern. I'm certain of that. But just in case it hasn't, uh, you really need to press for it because that is your future. Uh, that is where the 65% of the global GDP will be. The 35% will be where, where I grew up uh, thinking it was, which is with 80% of the places that uh, are essentially in the West, plus Japan. And if I can leave you with anything, since I have exactly one minute and a half left, it is to say to you that in my experience and in my time working in this international field, the first thing was to deal with the extremities of the claims on trying to get some change. And so I worked in Africa. And even today, I'll come back to it in just a second. Africa will now have 20% of the world's GDP. 20%. It'll be $1.8 to $2 billion. Trillion dollars. Trillion dollars. And that'll be 20% of the global GDP. And I might add, there's still a huge need for development in Africa because the per capita income, even with that, will be seen somewhere between four and $5,000 per capita in the year 2050, when in India it's probably 20000 and in China it's probably over 30000 So there's a huge gap that you need to face in Africa. And the United States and the rich countries will be sort of eighty, ninety, dollars $100,000 per capita. So the world is building up to this enormous differential in terms of, of income. And if I had more time, I would talk to you also about the changes that are needed in infrastructure and what is needed to try and bring these countries along when it's not there easily available. But it is a whole subject which you will need to confront. And you will need to confront it because, A, it will be where the work is being done, and secondly, you'll be fighting for stability on the planet. You'll be fighting for a world that is a little more peaceful. And I might add, you'll be fighting for individual resources like water, which, as I'm sure you know from work here at LSE, will come under great stress in the period 1925, I mean 2025-2030, as so much of the world will be lacking water. And there'll be so many people that don't have water. And it'll bring about shifts in migration and shifts 
in the way in which countries develop. So you'll have water, you'll have two billion people coming up that are not as well off as in other places. You'll still have dollar poverty, but if you read Amarcha's book, you will find that there is that form of poverty still in many parts of the world. And you'll find that those countries are seeking to educate themselves more, as I've shown you, about the new world than we are. And I quoted the statistics for China and India. So we're going into this next 40 years, in my judgment, not as well prepared as we might be, not as conscious as we should be of what is going to happen in the world, not as conscious as we should be of the new challenges. And so I'm very happy to have the opportunity to come here at Nick's invitation and to see as I look around the room so many faces that are more intelligent than Nick's and mine and dare I say, I won't say that about you, Amarcha. You're, you're, too, <coughs> you're too clever. But I mean, for, for Nick and myself, or at least for myself, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very happy to see that this group is here and that you're going to deal with the challenges that I've quickly outlined and which I am certain you will be capable of resolving. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Um, the changes that Jim described in, uh, in the World Bank in terms of putting the country in the driver's seat, taking a long-term view, dealing with debt, dealing with governance and uh, corruption issues, um, putting it all together in a way that uh, development action could really get results on scale. Um, might sound obvious from here, but they were a period of they constituted a period of remarkable change in, uh, in the World Bank that led many changes in uh, the way in which people understand and see policy. And it, it takes somebody with Jim's experience of the world and his long-term perspective to help us look ahead and to see how radically the world is changing and to pose the real challenge as to whether we in the rich countries have really understood that. Uh, anywhere near fast enough or, or the scale. So, Jim, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Now, we've got about 25 minutes for questions and answers. Um, uh, Amartya Sen will participate in that uh, questioning and answering. Maybe he'll do questions and answers. We'll, uh, we'll see. Um, but what we'd like to do is open up the floor now and... Uh, you could put uh, questions to the platform, um, uh, ideally not to me, but to uh, Jim and uh, Amartya. If I can't restrain myself, I won't, but I'll try not to, and uh, to give you as much time as possible. So if you could give your name and uh, keep the questions uh, as short as possible. Indeed, not as short as possible, Sorry. keep the questions short. Gentlemen there at the back. Um, hello, I'm Rav. I'm a, a development student here at LSE. Um, there's a lot of debate at the moment about the, uh, what will replace the Millennium Development Goals. And um, so, James, you were at the bank 
during the time the goals are being put together. And there's a lot of debate about how our definitions of deprivation and poverty need to be broadened. People are talking about goals for empowerment, goals for gender equality, goals for environmental sustainability. Uh, so you were there when the original ones put together. Uh, Professor Sen, you've obviously um, done a tremendous amount to broaden our ideas of deprivation. So I was wondering if I could pin you both down to maybe one or two additional dimensions that you think a future set of post-MDGs ought to consider in addition to the things they currently consider, what perhaps the most important ones might be. Okay. Thank you. I'm going to take three at a time. Anyone from upstairs there? The lady right at the back. Uh, hi there, my name is Melissa Carson. Uh, my question is probably mostly to Professor Sen. What are the Where one are or... You? Right <laughs> at the top of the back. Right at the top of the back. <laughs> you know, disembodied questions are very nervous. <laughs> nervous making, yeah. Easier to put a face to it. Um, what are the one or two biggest theoretical questions you're working on? For example, I know um, the development community, one of the big issues is the mass of wealth and how power influences the decisions that we make. How could you articulate what are the two or three biggest questions you think there are for us and of that nature? Thank you. One more, and then we'll go gentlemen over there. Hi, I'm Abir. I'm a uh, master's student in post-war recovery studies at York University. Uh, I was hoping to get your views on um, the changes currently going on in the Arab world with the Arab Spring, and in terms of... Uh, with the economic changes that might take place, uh, do you see there being any tension, perhaps, if there does end up being demands for a democratic voice? And if there is that democratic voice, will there be any tension between putting through any economic reforms that may be needed? Thank, thank you very much. Uh, they're, they're all big questions, so the answers will obviously uh, have to be short in order to... Um, allow one or two more rounds um, of, of questions. So what to do to replace the MDGs, the big theoretical challenges of our time, including wealth and power, and changes in the Arab world? Jim, do you want to start? Well, let me start backwards. <clears throat> I think um, you may, may or may not know that I spent um, a year or so working on uh, the issue of uh, Israel-Palestine uh, as the quartet envoy, and uh, had a chance in that—I'm sorry—had a chance in that capacity, and also before that to travel when I was at the bank very broadly in the Arab world. And um, I'd go when I was at the bank twice a year to the Middle East, and I think went to just about every country and made a lot of friends. Uh, so I say this with a feeling of great friendship to many of the leaders in the Middle East. But I have to say that my big worry in the Middle East is that with the changing dynamic in terms of youth and in terms of unemployment, uh, which we saw very visibly disclosed in the Egyptian uprising, where I was fascinated to see that as you interviewed the people in the streets, there wasn't a single mention of Israel. It was all about jobs. It was all about getting a future. And that um, 
I would have to say as a as an outside friend, but not a commentator, that if I were in the region, I would be very concerned about the uh, uneven distribution of opportunities and wealth. And uh, with the new weapon of Internet connection, which links the young people in the Middle East instantly with what is going on, beyond national nationality, that I would be very concerned about the period for the next, within the next 10 to 15 years, about uh, the current national order that exists in the Middle East. I say that uh, with friendship, and I say that uh, with a great degree of um, humility. But in terms of my experience, it would lead me to think that it's a big problem, a big issue in today's world. So that's what I would say about the Arab Spring. I don't think it is just a an issue between the two sects of Islam. I think that is an issue that's playing out in that way. But I think the broader issue is youth and lack of job. And that's certainly what I found in the region. Uh, with regard to wealth, it is clearly something that Professor Sen can talk about more than I can, given his salary as a professor, and the fact that I'm not working anymore, which is even worse. Uh, and in relation to a Instead new job... Instead of being six times my salary, <laughs> it become merely twice. <laughs> I don't work at all. That's why I came. <clears throat> I'm not sure I came here hoping for a fee, but I only learned just before I came in that Nick's not going to pay me. And, and uh, that's why you got speech number three. You didn't get my best speech. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm selling that somewhere else, actually. Um, uh, if you're interested, you can hear it at Oxford tomorrow. Uh, it'll, be report, it'll be reported in the press, I hope, and you get some idea of what I think. Uh, on the new goals for development, I have to say just this, that I think that they were very useful, the, the past goals. But as you dig into them, they, I think, were inadequate in relation to their simplicity. I think if you read Development as Freedom, uh, you will recognize that there are multiple objectives that are outlined by Amartya, actually, in the book. And so these simple, for me, the simple numerical targets uh, might be useful, but you need to handle them with great care in terms of seeing whether you are succeeding or not. And I would be personally a little reluctant to set up targets again of reducing something by X percent is going to make a huge difference. I think if you look at the arguments uh, of Professor Sen in terms of the issues that he draws out, they're too complex, I think, to be hit by one single objective. And so it would be my hope that it's not going to happen because people are already arguing about what the objectives should be. But I think they can be useful in focusing something, but I think that we should give everybody this book, Development as Freedom. <clears throat> and perhaps one of the objectives should be that everybody reads that book. Uh, that would be a rather nice objective um, uh, to get the leaders of every country 
to read the book and pass a test on it. <laughs> and if we have that, I think it'll make a difference. Thank you. Uh, Amartya. Well, it was a fascinating question, but given time quickly. Um, I think that it's not so much, I don't think you're looking for definition of development, but characterization of it, what other things to look at. I think, and one way of fixing the mind is exactly what you suggested in the, as the um, MDGs, the Millennium Development Goal period, comes to an end. In 2015, which way should we go? Um, I think an interesting clue is that the preceding the Millennium Development Goal, there was something that the United Nations passed called the Millennium Declaration. And it was similarly um, uh, inspiring and, 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 and direction-setting declaration as the 1948 Declaration of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, led by Eleanor Roosevelt, but the United Nations did part of it unanimously. Now, the, in the Millennium Development Goal, there are things like um, democracy, human rights, uh, uh, um, issues of equity in itself. And you see, these are not very easy to measure. What happened with the Millennium Development Goals, these are the ones which are immediately quantifiable. Now, the quantifiable is a complex notion, and I since I have some interest in the analytics of it, and next year I'm teaching a course with our professor of mathematics, uh, Barry Mazer, and, 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 and a friend, uh, another friend, namely Eric Maskin, on the nature of mathematical reasoning. A quantification isn't really what we take it to be. It doesn't have to be 20, 23, 47. Basically, it's concerned with ranking. And, of course, in all these matters, you can do, you know, human rights are being more violated now than in the past. These are pure ranking. And this is some way quantification then comes with a lot of a real valid representation and so forth. So I think we lost something in the Millennium Development Goals, moving from the Millennium Declaration. And I would be very strongly arguing for broadening it up again. And in that, even the 1948 Declaration, which I referred to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, could play a big part. So I, that's the direction I would try to uh, influence you if you, uh, if you are willing to be influenced. I think I'll probably suggest that. On the subject of um, one or two big ideas that broadening uh, that we ought to uh, do, um, I think the question came up uh, uh, I'm not sure which question came from where. I think I'm looking at the wrong direction when I'm answering the <laughs> question. <laughs> but um, the lady right at the top who asked about the big theoretical issues and the and wealth and power. Okay. Yeah, and now, uh, so what was your question? Uh, the MDG, okay. Uh, all right, so I've done, I've done you, as it were. Uh, <laughs> now, the, on, the, on the subject of one or two great ideas, the... I think, first of all, we shouldn't say one or two great ideas, because there are many, many things we, we ought to do. And it's always a mistake to say, I mean, when I land in Bombay and a newspaper said, if there are three things you wanted to do in India, what would you like to do? So I had to say, why three things? Why I can't do 135 things that I want to do in India? And that's really what happens when people say, this is important, really, this matter 
and nothing else matters. That's the real difficulty in the perspective. That does matter, but there's so many other things that matter too. And I think, uh, I think the examples, for example, you gave about power. I think someone, someone talked about power. Uh, I think it's important. It's a, it's a complex issue. And uh, I think one of the clues is a remark that Anuin Bevan made, which Michael Foote played up very much in his biography, where, where, he, uh, where uh, Bevan said, the point of having power is to give it away. Now, it sounds very uh, contrary, but of course what it really means that if you have the power to give it away, that means somebody else doesn't have that power over you. It's the, it's, it's the denial of the other people having the power. It's the kind of thing that you find in, across the world. A lot of, I was looking the other day at Steve Biko's statement, lots of them are just concerned about that, not having power over the others. Uh, that's not what the black power movement would be, but it would be not allowing others to have that kind of power on you. I think that's a very, very important idea to pursue in the context of development. Now, quickly, since uh, Nick is about to cut me off, the, um, on, the, on the Arab world, I think, I would say that, you know, it's an issue, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Jim has already uh, answered a part of the question very, very clearly, but I'd say that part of it is not so much the question of how to change the Arab world, but also what from its past to carry over. That's really a very important issue. Because I think we are creatures that, uh, you know, we live in, a, in the present. The present is a very fleeting moment of time. It passes even as we speak. What I said a minute ago is in the past. I, and they continue to influence us. Now, I think the reading in the Arab world has increasingly become narrow. I mean, when you think about, say, take somebody like Al-Khwarizmi, a mathematician, 9th century, definitely Muslim. Uh, on the other hand, what we're celebrating is, is, is maths also. There's no contradiction between them. Uh, uh, Al-Khwarizmi is a guy you might or might not know from which whom the word, from whose name the word algorithm comes and from his book, Al-Jabba the word algebra comes. So ninth century, he's getting on to those issues. These are part of the Arab heritage too. Now, if one just simply celebrates the religious part of the heritage and then goes into the sections in Sintasiyas and, and Sufi and others, I think you're making it more and more now. There's a very broad Arab culture which dominated the world, I mean, there were things that were moving from one part of the world to the other, to the Arabs. For example, uh, if you take a word like sign, uh, the first use of it is Aryabhata in India, around 401 AD. He calls it Jia. The Arabs call it Jiba. Since Arabic, like Hebrew, has no vowel, vowel is written as consonant, J-B. The later generation of Arab Mathematicians call it jabe, because jiba is a completely meaningless word, but jabe has a clear meaning, namely a cove or a bay. And when in 1150, Gerardo of Cremona translated that into Latin, he translated jabe into sinus, meaning a lake and cove in, in Latin, and that, of course, becomes the word sign. So in that one word, you see a cross-cultural interaction, which is really extraordinarily important. And Arabs are not only, first of all, they're very creative, 
in terms of math and, and many other things, science and architecture and so on. At the same time, they're also, you know, they're preserving Greek thoughts, Aristotle and Plato would remember for a long time when the original records had vanished to the Arabic merchant. Similarly, Indian mathematics goes to Italy and Europe to there. And similarly, the other way around. So I think that's the enormous heritage that I'd look for. It's not a question of change. It's a question of remembering the past fully rather than very partially. So that's where I would draw my attention to. Thank you, Martin. Now I'm going to take two questions very quickly. Um, Robert Wade down here and the lady in the front row there, and then we'll, we'll have to stop. And I'm sorry to all of you who haven't been able to ask a question. Afterwards, the lady in the right in the front here, please. Here. here you. Please. Uh, Robert Wade, I want to ask a question about the governance of the bank. Um, if you were the, still the president... Um, what would you advise the uh, governments of the borrowing countries to do in order to break the American monopoly on the presidency of the World Bank? What concrete steps do you think the borrowing governments should be doing? <laughs> and uh, this, this lady here. Um, Kriti Trehan, I'm doing public international law at the LSE. Um, I know Dr. S uh, Professor Sen has spoken about uh, human rights and development, and my question is with regards to that, especially in light of something like economic sanctions that are uh, in place over various parts of the world. Uh, how do you harmonize the concept of the human right to development itself in, in, in such a scenario where um, Sir James also spoke of uh, the, the concept of corruption and how um, the, uh, this, there's only a certain amount of uh, persons who have the power in a certain nation and sanctions tend to focus on those people. And, and the question? The question is how would you harmonize the idea of the human rights to development in, in a sanction scenario? Thank you very much. I think perhaps, Jim, um, one for you and one for Archie. Given, I know great. that you could both reply on both. But. Great. No, no, I think one each is great. I think... Um, <laughs> Two for the price of one would be great too. Yeah. <laughs> um, on the issue of governance of the bank, I think it, uh, it should change and it will change. Um, the governance of both the bank and the fund were determined in that 80-20 period. And um, that's a period in which the OECD ran it, and within the OECD, the power, most powerful country was the US, and uh, collectively, Europe was the other most powerful area. And so they divided up the spoils and had one run the bank and one run the, uh, one run the fund. Uh, I think that is outdated. I think it will change. I think it should change. How? Well, if the shareholders converted. What Mrs. Lagarde is trying to do now is to double the number of shares and change the shareholdings and the weight and the proportion of the shareholdings. And uh, if she succeeds in doing that, which I believe she will, then you'll have a very different weighting of the shares. And if it were to ever come to a vote, I think that, uh, first of all, she would not be in the job, someone else would be in the job. But I personally don't think it will get to that. Um, my own judgment is that this was the last time that was 
that the assumption was there that a U.S. person should run the bank and a European should run the fund. There was a very strong feeling amongst the shareholders that that shouldn't happen again. And it's very strong. And I can't guarantee you that uh, U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, when Jim Kim resigns, uh, the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury won't dig his toes in and try and make sure it happens, or that uh, a European leader will not dig his, toes, his or her toes in and uh, make sure that happens. But I think it, uh, I personally think it is unlikely. And one of the reasons that I think it is unlikely is that you know that um, the BRIC countries have together, uh, gotten together with Russia uh, to talk about a new institution which will, with trillions of dollars potential, uh, will deal with uh, financing of a series of countries in developing countries. And that was announced a little while ago. It, uh, you've not had any advance in terms of how it's going to work because they're arguing about it. But um, I have every belief that something will emerge which will be a tool to use against uh, the, opposite, the, the assumption in either of the institutions that... Uh, the leadership should always follow that path. I think you would find inside the institutions themselves a very strong feeling that it should change, a very strong feeling. And I also think that people in the institutions know that something that was said in '48, after World War II uh, deserves some reassessment uh, this, this period later. I personally believe it will happen. Thank you, Jim. I, just a footnote, I, I've been working on the BRICS-led Infrastructure Development Bank for just over two years. It, it was announced in uh, uh, the BRICS Summit in uh, Durban in March, and uh, that work is continuing fairly rapidly. I believe it will happen, and I think that uh, the pressure it will put on other institutions will be wholly healthy. Um, Amartya, would you... Um, Excuse me, uh, yeah. and it, is the rumour correct that you're going to be chairman of that? No. <laughs> As I learned to say in the Majesty's Treasury, I couldn't possibly comment. I see. Yeah. Um, Amartya. Well, I think this question about um, human rights... I, you know, I think, um, I don't think we are really uh, differing, but I don't believe that there's such a thing as human rights to development. Uh, you know, I think the concept of human rights isn't really like that. Human rights rise from the beginning. Uh, I think there's a wonderful um, book on the history of it uh, by a historian called Lynn Hunt called The In um, uh, Invention of Human Rights. And it's going back to the, uh, the, the French and the, uh, the American Declaration on uh, discussions on it, including the Declaration of um, Fundamental Rights of Human, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of human beings. And if you... Uh, human rights is something about certain freedoms that human beings have. And uh, along with that comes the correlate duty, what others ought to do. Not duty-specific form, what Kant would call perfect obligation, but an imperfect obligation. Everyone has a duty to help. So in that context... Development isn't, I, I, I can't, you know, uh, development is not something that happens to you or to me individually, it happens to the society. So I won't go in that direction, but human rights are very important, and your question is important, how to 
harmon island. But what's the problem? The problem is there's deep inequalities in human life. You know, people, for example, I mean, the, those who have argued that liberty or human freedom are not very important have never been people who have lacked liberty or human freedom in their lives. But they have not been keen on other people having liberty and freedom in the same way. So I think the debate has always been in the, in the classic territory of, of, of inequality, and then the question is equality of what? If you take somebody like, say, Marx, it's hard to think of someone who uh, speaks as much about conflict in the context of class and so on, and also about gender in one of a few passages. The, in that context, but where does he go? I mean, when you're he's thinking of a plan, for future, like the critique of Gotha program, his last published work in 1875, he's, he, he's not concerned that the conflict will stay. He's saying the conflict will disappear. And when the conflict disappears, that you might be able to have distribution according to needs, but until then you'll have need for incentives, and distribution of work would continue to be important. So it's a very practical book. But there's no presumption that you cannot overcome the conflict that uh, that exists. So I think the look, thing to look at are inequalities. If you take uh, my country, and I didn't get your name, but um, maybe you're from South Asia, in which case it might be at least from India or close to India. You know, we have high growth rate. If you take um, India with Bangladesh, India was 20% higher uh, in per capita income. Now we are 50% higher. Uh, we were three years ahead in life expectancy. Bangladesh is now three years ahead of life expectancy in India. Uh, Bangladesh has lower mortality of rates of children, has less gender differences. The the female literacy has dramatically improved in Bangladesh. The uh, and the uh, income alone didn't do it. Now, of course. Uh, Bangladesh also needs more income and uh, higher growth rate would be a good thing. But the human rights deserve attention and the inequality connected with it. 30th of um, July last year, where uh, one half of the country, India, was plunged into darkness. 600 million people didn't have power. And people were outraged about that, and quite rightly too, because public institutions should not be run in a way that it's so fragile. But what wasn't discussed in the papers is that of the 600 million people, 200 million people had no electric connection anyway. (laughs) So that we are dealing with two distinct problems. One is the deep inequality of those who have and those who haven't, whether it's power, nutrition, and that's even very basic education, basic health care, or, uh, you know, uh, the, but in addition to inequality, uh, you have the issue of organization, having the, the delivery right, and that's where all the question of corruption and so on, which uh, Jim has been so concerned with. Uh, and that C word uh, comes <laughs> in all kinds of ways. But corruption is not the only factor. Lack of accountability, not having a proper system. And then a misdiagnosis. You'll be often told, China doesn't have this because the Chinese power sector is privatized. Well, it isn't. The Chinese private sector is power sector is exactly like in India, run by the government, but there's some private firm. But there is also in India, the Tata, Reliance, etc., they provide power. I think it's said the Chinese have been consistently invested more on power than the Indians have, 
and Indians have not had, the Chinese haven't had to, the compulsion to placate people, basically, who call themselves ordinary people, but who are actually not the poorest. The ordinary people in India is the bottom 20% of the top 20%. That is relatively better off. So you argue about having cheap uh, diesel, whereas the poorest people have no instrument with which diesel could be used. You agitate about cooking gas prices being cheaper, whereas most uh, Indians don't have any, any instrument into a cooking gas cylinder can go in. So I think this dialogue is very important. The way to guarantee that equity is to bring these discussions in the mainstream of public debate. India is a democracy. Uh, why shouldn't it be able to give bigger emphasis on, on these rather than the relatively glitzy things on which the newspapers tend to concentrate much. I mean, Indian newspapers are a glory. The fact that India publishes more newspapers than any other country in the world by a long margin is itself a glory, but the question is how much use is being made for exactly the question you are raising, namely harmonize, I would say, uh, make it equitable and advance on an equitable basis the fulfillment of human rights. So I think that's, uh, that's a very good question, right? Take the answer in a slightly different direction. Thank, thank you, Martin. Now, can I, before we close, can I just make two administrative announcements? Last year, uh, Amartya couldn't get out of the hall. Um, so could you make sure that you have a clear path out there for Amartya to leave? And I'm going to divide them up because Jim Wolfenson, Sir James, is going to sign... And uh, the books are where? Just out at uh, the back door. You will, fall, you will form an orderly line to get your uh, book signed. Um, but before you do that, I'd like you to join me in thanking two wonderful people on uh, this platform. It's a real, real pleasure.